All right. Well, um, we are concluding our series on the Minor Prophets. As I mentioned earlier, it has taken us quite a while to get through all of these um, because we've had several pit stops along the way, and, uh, but we are finally coming to a conclusion. Uh, we have covered all of the Minor Prophets plus a, an introductory uh, lesson at the beginning, at the outset there, so 13 uh, Sundays we've spent in the Minor Prophets. What I'd like to do is to start off kind of a little bit different this morning. Um, as we have examined the, the Minor Prophets together, as we've made our way through several of them, you saw a lot of repeated themes, you saw a lot of things that came, uh, came out in each of the Prophets, or at least in several of the Prophets. And what I like to do this morning is kind of a theology. I like to conclude a book with a theology of. And so since we're kind of taking the Minor Prophets as a set, uh, this morning is really theology of the Minor Prophets. What, what does it teach us about God? What does it teach us about the way in which He interacts with His people? Um, but before I give you kind of my, uh, my notes, my theological observations from the Minor Prophets, I'd be interested to know what lessons have you learned? Uh, what themes did you see coming through on a regular basis through the Minor Prophets? And um, how perhaps even did that impact you? Or, or what are the things that you're meditating on uh, as you come away from this study? What are your observations? So hopefully you have a few. And even if you weren't here for every one of them, the, the, the fact of the matter is there's a lot of the same themes in each one, isn't there? And so um, I want to see uh, what you've learned, what has been helpful to you, um, what observations you have uh, from the Minor Prophets. All right, so who will be first? Who has a, a lesson, something that you've learned, um, observation from the Minor Prophets? Hope you learned something. If not, I'll just go back and preach all of them. Yes, sir? There was a common thread Mm. It's a difficult for each of us to constantly recall this because, of course, we want our own way and our own path. But uh, I see in these minor prophets a reminder of this. Amen. Amen. God is in sovereign control of all things. Wonderful, wonderful truth. Yes, sir. The um, idea of repentance seems to come up in almost all... Mm-hmm. <laughs> somehow not needing to keep that in our own minds and also repent of stuff that God reveals to us. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you're right. And it's and it's interesting how so repentance comes through again and again and it's in some of the prophets it's almost like um, like you God's people, you need this too. <laughs> right? Don't just think about them. And I think that's that's a what you said is a tremendous lesson for us. Like we're real quick to go, yeah, those, those pagans over there, they really need to repent. And the reality of it is God's people need to be repenting as well. So that's a fantastic observation. Excellent. What else? Yes, sir. Um, a lot of these, um, there's been, I guess, looking forward to the coming Savior or Messiah and... Um, 
Mm. Um, also looking back, you know, what hasn't been done. Excellent. Very good. Yeah, so that future hope. What else? Yes, sir? God is a better finder than we are hiders. Good. <laughs> I like that. Well said. God is a better finder than we are hiders. Yeah. Um, expand on that. What? Tell me. I, I think that's well said. But what? What? What are you thinking there? Um, Jonah. Oh. Okay. Good. Yeah. Jonah tries to run from God. <laughs> yeah. And the irony of that statement, flee from the presence of the Lord, is just you know, just kind of smacks you in the face. Jonah rose up to flee from the presence of the Lord. Yeah. Good. What else? Yes, sir. Uh, when we consider God's priorities, it challenges our comfort. I, uh, that was from last week, but that really stuck with me, especially um, the part uh, that is uh, when our comfort is more important than God's work, we need to question our priorities. Yeah. Amen. All right, anything else? Got another one, huh? You got a lot out of this series. Good. Well, so God is not beyond using difficult circumstances to bring about our repentance. Hmm. And it's a good thing that that's so. Right, right. Good. Even though <laughs> mm-hmm. we think of the process as terrible, I guess that would mean that the consequences would even be more terrible mm-hmm. if he didn't. Mm. Yeah, he, he loves us too much than to let us get away with our sin. And uh, even if it's uncomfortable for us, God's doing it for our good. Amen. Amen. All right, anything else? All right, let's conclude in prayer. No. <laughs> Um, actually, you got a lot of them. A lot of the observations that I have that I want to kind of cause us to think about this morning are um, things that you've touched on uh, this morning. So that's, that's very helpful, very valuable that you are um, making these observations. So I have, um, I suppose, six uh, observations. Before we jump into those observations, I just kind of want to remind you of each book just real quickly. So Hosea, we had the theme of God's faithful love. Remember, this is the story of the prophet who took to himself a wife who proved to be unfaithful, and God uses that as an illustration of his people. And then we have the book of Joel, which is one of two books that heavily emphasizes the day of the Lord. All right, this was back early on in our study, and we talked about the book of Joel. We talked about the day of the Lord. Uh, you may have been with us uh, for that, and, and we talked a little bit about the theme of the day of the Lord that actually goes through the entirety of the Bible. All right? And what we, what we pointed out was that the, in the Hebrew mind, the day of the Lord began with, excuse me, in the Hebrew mind, the day began with darkness. So it starts at sunset. So your Jewish friends and neighbors will observe their Jewish holidays beginning at sunset on what we think of as the night before, right? Uh, That's the way the Hebrew mind conceived of the day. So when we talk about the day of the Lord, 
the day of the Lord likewise starts with the darkness. It starts with the heavy. It starts with the, the judgment. And then the day of the Lord dawns into a renewed hope. All right. And that's, that's what we see there with this motif. Joel talks a lot about the day of the Lord and he announces judgment and then he announces the future, the future hope. Uh, we talked about the, uh, the book of Amos and uh, some of the pagan nations that were surrounding Israel and God's judgment on injustice, but then also an indictment of God's own people for the injustice that they were perpetuating. Obadiah, God defends his people against oppressors. You remember, this was a a prophecy against Edom, the the brother, if you will, uh, the, the, the relative of God's people and the oppression that they afflicted. And Obadiah reminds God's people and actually comforts them with the reality that God will not allow oppression to go forever, that at some point he will um, intercede. Jonah, of course, I think is probably the minor prophet that we are most familiar with. Uh, Jonah is God correcting a wayward prophet. Right? This, was, this was Jonah, the prophet to Israel who was called to preach to the people of Nineveh, the, the pagan nation, and he did not want to do it. Right? The Assyrians were despised. They were horrible people. And then uh, through, the, uh, through the, the, the avenue of a whale, God got his attention, <laughs> spit him back up on the shore, and he went to preach the message in Nineveh hesitantly. We know hesitantly because when they repented, What did he do? He climbed up on a hillside and he shook his fist at God and said, See, God, I told you this would happen. You are merciful. I knew it. And this is why I didn't want to preach. And so he tries to throw God's own goodness back in his face. And then the book has this kind of cliffhanger ending. Like, Jonah, do you care more about a plant than you do about people? And that's the way the book ends. And uh, very, very stark ending that I think kind of jolts us into the realization that we are too often like God's prophet that we meet here, Jonah. Micah, the theme of God's justice will reign, that God will make things right, that there will be justice in the end. Nahum has a very similar theme, the surety of justice. Habakkuk, remember we talked about the idea of theodicy, that is the the, um, the justification of God's ways. So how is God at work in bad times? So here is Habakkuk in bad times, and, and he is, God is using his prophet to uh, encourage people's faithfulness, their faith in, in God, even in the midst of bad times. Zephaniah, again, the theme of justice is very strong, justice for God's people. Haggai uh, was referred to, we preached last week, Uh, What are your priorities? These were the people that were called to rebuild, and they were getting discouraged. They were getting waylaid, and uh, other things got in the way. Other things became their priorities, and so Haggai was calling them back to build. Zechariah's very similar theme, calling the people to rebuild. They were actually contemporaries, and uh, Zechariah is answering the question, what is God up to? What is God doing? And he causes them to get their eyes up off of their little circumstances and get the bigger picture of what God, God is doing. And Malachi, uh, again, to a post-exilic people, 
uh, a call to honor God. And so those are the 12 books of the Minor Prophet. Uh, in the Hebrew Bible, they're one book, and they're not exactly in that order. Um, we attempted to preach them in the order of the Hebrew Bible, and then I, I kind of messed up uh, Haggai and got that out of order. But uh, we re- preach them roughly in the order of the Hebrew Bible. Um, so those are the, just kind of a reminder, you may have been here for some of them or all of them, and uh, uh, hopefully that kind of refreshes, refreshes your memory uh, as well. Um, the first observation that I want us to think about is that because God is faithful, He must judge sin. You know, we live in a world that wants to pass God off as, as soft, as uh, all mercy, all love, no justice. And that is not a balanced picture of God. We certainly see in Scripture a God of love, a God of long-suffering, a God of mercy, a God of grace. But all of that is against the backdrop of the reality that God cannot let sin go forever, that His patience will eventually run out, that, that sin will be punished. And we see in the Minor Prophets both that, that the wicked nations, the pagan nations, are judged for their sin, yet at the same time, the prophets are often reminding God's people that it's not just the pagan nations that need to repent, as we were talking about a few minutes ago. That God's own people are often guilty of the same injustices. They are often guilty of the same waywardness and idol worship, and that does not go unnoticed on the part of God. So Jonah is an example of someone who um, is called upon to preach to the pagan nations. And he is unique in that he is kind of an exclusive, exclusively that. Um, but then you've got Nahum, right, that, remember, is the sequel to the book of Jonah. Right? So Jonah preaches, they repent, and that lasts for maybe a generation. And then along comes Nahum and says, all right, you've gone back, you will be judged. And so he preaches against Assyria too, uh, and ultimately, um, soon after Nahum's prophecy, Assyria is judged. So God is faithful. He will judge sin. Now, why is that important for us? Well, it is, first of all, important for us because we need to be accurate about who God is. As we present God to those around us, we do need to be clear that He is a God of love, He is a God of mercy, He is a God of grace. But that if we repudiate His grace, if we refuse it, if we push away His mercy, He will not not forever endure our sin. He is a God who judges. He is a God who takes revenge on those who rebel against Him. And that is a serious thing. It is a serious thing for us to shake our fist in the face of a holy God who tells us what He expects of us, and then we refuse to do it. God's people are not impervious to this need for ongoing repentance. And, and you probably heard us say it before, that this is not just that, that we become Christians through the avenue of repentance and then we're done, but that actually God's people are not just repentant in the sense that they once repented of their sins, but that they are repenting people. And so for us, the reminder is that we live each day a repentant life, that we are, we are quick to notice our own sin, that we are quick to hear the convicting word of the Spirit in our heart, 
that, that we are quick to be corrected by God's word and to turn and repent again and again and again, because that is where we access the mercy and the grace of God. So God will judge sin, and for that reason, we must be repenting people. We see also in the Minor Prophets that God sometimes uses the wicked to accomplish His purposes. Amos really introduces this message strongly. He gives the indictments to the surrounding nations. You may remember in the book of Amos that, that he started, he, he kind of gave this, uh, this tour of the compass, all the surrounding nations. And even as he is talking about the evil of the surrounding nations, God's people probably are celebrating in their hearts. Oh yeah, God, go get them, sick them. Right? Until all of a sudden it comes back home. God still holds His own people responsible for their evil. And although this is difficult, it stands that God is in control. Which really is another theme that, that, that we're reminded of when we're talking about using the wicked to accomplish His purposes. We look at that and we say, how is it? How is it that, that God, who is, who is just and righteous and good can use even the wicked for his purposes. God's people, when they were judged, they were judged by wicked nations. They were defeated by pagan people. God was still orchestrating all of those things for his people's own good and for his glory. And so when we look at the evil that is around us, we look at things that seem out of control. Um, Brother Bob, I think, was the one that brought up the, the point. The, the, over and over again, we see in the prophets, God is sovereign. He is in control. Nothing escapes His notice and nothing escapes His control, not even the wicked. Now, are the, the wicked responsible? When, when we do wickedly, are we responsible for actions? Absolutely. But somehow, within the, the circle of God's sovereignty, people can, can accomplish wicked deeds, they can perform wicked actions, and yet God is still on the throne. He is still in control. And so as we think about God's sovereignty, even through the wicked, I wonder, do we sometimes look at the circumstances around us? Do we look at even the fact that we have been done wrongly We've been mistreated. We've been abused. We have been taken advantage of. We are victims of a fallen world. We are victims of circumstances that are beyond our control. We must be reminded that when those things happen, God is still sovereign. God is still controlling those things. Yes, those who have wronged you are responsible for their actions. And this is not to say that we should, we should brush aside or ignore evil. That's not to say that at all. But, but in the end analysis, we know that even the wicked do not escape God's sovereignty. And so God accomplishes His purposes. He accomplishes His purposes both in Israel in the north and Judah in the south, and He does it through evil nations. God is sovereign. We also notice through the prophets that God is faithful and His messengers are called upon to be faithful spokes spokesmen. 
Micah, for example, showed up with a message of, of gloom and doom. The other false prophets in his day were, were saying, oh, everything's wonderful, everything's rosy. They were saying that the very thing that everyone wanted to hear. They were the prosperity preachers of their day. And along comes Micah. In chapter 2, verse 6, they called him a ranting prattler. <laughs> You're just a troublemaker. Quit your ranting. Don't say the thing that nobody wants to hear. Preach the Preach the message that we want to hear. But that's not what a prophet was called upon to do. All right, remember Deuteronomy 18, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that which, he has spoke, that which the Lord has not spoken, the prophet has spoken presumptuously, and you shall be afraid of him. This is the idea of rebelliously. This is, this is the section where God is teaching about false prophets. Prophet, false prophets say what they want to say, True prophets say what God has told them to say. And so because God is faithful, so too must his servants be faithful to the message that he has given them. They are to, to preach the truth. They are to preach it straight. They are not to cut corners. You and I do not have the prerogative to innovate on God's message. If God has said it, it is so. And the world may want us to change our message. The pressure around us may, may tempt us to change our message. But the truth is what God has said. And I have no choice but to say what God has said. I may want to modify the message. I may want to soften it. I may want to, to say what everyone wants to hear. But as God's servants, we do not have that opportunity. And again, this is, uh, I've said it before, I, I said it. Um, when we applied this um, text of Scripture when we did our introduction. But this is why we subscribe to this philosophy of preaching, where we, we take God's Word and we expose it, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, consistently through the text of Scripture, because what God has said is what matters. We simply report what God has said. It's like the old detective show, right? Just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. That's what we get to do as God's people. We just report the facts. We just say, this is what God has said. It's not my message. It's God's message. That's what the prophets were called upon to do. It was unpopular. It was not liked. But that's what God's prophets, God's spokesmen are called upon to do. Another observation as we think about the theology of the minor prophets, God is faithful. And this is really where it, it, it applies to us. God is faithful, and therefore, His people must pursue purity. God's people must pursue holiness. Now, it is true that our faithfulness will always pale in comparison to the, to the ultimate faithfulness, the perfect faithfulness of God. But we are called upon to be faithful because He is faithful. And may our faithfulness in some weak, diminished way slightly reflect the faithfulness of the always faithful God. And so God's people, every single prophet, except Jonah probably who wasn't really preaching to God's people, but the rest of them, what, this message comes through again and again and again. It is a call to their covenant obligations. You live up to the commitments that you've made. 
you abide by God's law you do what he has said to do you be a holy people and the fact that you're not being a holy people indicts you it puts you in the place of judgment well that message is still valuable for us today we have a tendency to to wink at to overlook to think little of our sin and this again goes back to our first point that God God judges sin God deals with sin within his own people you and I are called to be holy so if we take really no other practical application away from the minor prophets the call is God's people should live God's way they should pursue holiness you and I should be people who are people who are learning God's way and seeking every day by God's grace to abide by what God has said because God is faithful he will keep his promise and isn't this a wonderful truth about God God keeps his promises Oh, but his people messed up. His people went their own way. His people departed from him. Guess what? He still keeps his promise. Our, our previous series that we did, Old Testament series, we preached through each of the covenants. Remember this? And there were different types of covenants. There were some that were permanent covenants. There were some that were temporary covenants. There were... Siri wants to preach too. Um, and so, uh, you know, there were some that, that were... Um, uh, you know, you do this and God will do this. And there were other covenants that God said, this is what I'm going to do. And God's people went their own way. And, and so take, for example, the Deuteronomic covenant, the land covenant. Their enjoyment of the land was dependent upon their obedience. Yet God had made some promises that were timeless, right? He made promises to Abraham and he made promises to David and, and he made a promise of what would happen yet in the future through God's very people. And guess what? The prophets reminded them. He's still going to do it. You've gone your own way. You've been rebellious. And because of that, God is going to correct you. He's going to chasten you. But he will preserve a remnant. And he will ultimately do good through his people just as he has promised to do. Because God's faithful love is always in action. You remember this Hebrew word that we said, chesed, God's faithful love. Hosea actually references it 20 times in his book. Even though the wife of Hosea was unfaithful, God said, I'm going to show an object lesson and continue to bring her, you, you continue to bring her back. And this is what God does for his people. He has this, this ultimate plan in mind. And most of the prophets talk about the new covenant, the, the time when God will ultimately accomplish his ends through his people Israel. Now, here's where we get into um, a thing, something that is, it is a bit debated amongst Bible scholars. All right. So I'm going to tell you your pastor's viewpoint, and you can study this out on your own. And you can disagree with me if you would, if you would like to. We'll find out when we get to heaven. That I was right. Um, I really believe that when God makes these promises to the seed of Abraham, that these promises actually will be fulfilled to the physical seed of Abraham. That, that Israel itself, not spiritual Israel, 
not someone that stands in as a surrogate for Israel, but that Israel itself, God's chosen people, the physical seed of Abraham, have I made clear what I'm talking about, right? They will receive these promises one day yet in the future when we're talking about the new covenant, right? Now, some, some good, good uh, Bible scholars who love the Lord, who are orthodox, all right, this is not a question of, of orthodoxy, all right, believe that somehow the church substitutes for Israel, and I, I just reject that. I just think that the promises are worded so clearly to Abraham's seed, to physical Israel, that they will yet be fulfilled to physical Israel. Now, does the church in some way enter into many of the blessings that are articulated in the new covenant? Absolutely. I think that's abundantly clear, right? When we go into the New Testament, we see a lot of new covenant language. And so it is clear to me that we do enjoy the overflow of the promises that God made to Israel. But I still hold that when the prophets say, one day God will do this for his people, that it will still happen. I believe that fervently. God is faithful. He will keep his promises. Even though his people reject and rebel against him, he will still keep his promises. His his people's rebellion has not circumvented his plans for them. And he still has a great end in mind that he will accomplish. And every one of the prophets, even, even the darkest of prophets, even the ones that talk the most about judgment, what do you see? You see this glimmer of hope in every single one of them about what God will do, that he will restore his people, that he will make them right again with him, that they will live in peace and harmony and in right relationship with their God, Yahweh. And that is beautiful. That even in the midst of judgment, even in the midst of announcing the judgment of God that will, that will crush these people, yet God still has a good purpose. God will still restore his people to himself. And by that, we can be encouraged. Now, very closely wed with that is another truth that God is faithful and he rewards faithfulness. God will still accomplish his purposes, but as we are obedient to him, this is what the prophets were, was call, were calling Israel to, right? Be obedient, because as you are obedient, you put yourself in the place of greater blessing. Do you want to be blessed? Do you want to be rewarded? Do you want to be in right relationship with God? Well, be obedient. Keep the covenant promises that you have made. And so we must repent. Going, this goes all the way back to point number one. We must repent if we are to experience God's blessing. Take Zechariah, for example. He starts with a strong statement in chapter 1, verse 2. God has been very angry with your fathers. All right, I'm going to introduce it this way. <laughs> Like, you're being punished. You as a nation are being punished. God is angry with you. But then his whole message is, get yourself right so you can be again in the place of blessing. Really, many of the prophets replay that exact same message. It was high time for Israel or Judah, depending on the prophet, to realize that, that they could not treat lightly what God had told them. Their, the sinning of their nation, the sinning of their fathers had, had brought about the, the, 
the end of God's patience and the beginning of His righteous anger. And so, again and again, the prophets exhorted them to return, to turn. That's, that's an Old Testament concept that we would say in the New Testament, repent. Repent. Return to God. Turn. Avoid being like your fathers that caused this judgment. They refused God's invitation. They rejected His warnings. And so we see this, especially um, the sixth point, we really see especially in the post-exilic prophets, right? The, the prophets who uh, were preaching to the people after, after Judah had been taken into captivity and several generations, and a generation later, they were, they were allowed to return to rebuild. Do you remember this? And so there, the wall's all broken down, the city's all broken down, the temple's all broken down, and then they get discouraged. And the prophets come along and say, now, don't be like your fathers who God had to judge. Instead, be faithful. Because in your faithfulness, you will find greater reward. You will find the, the, the outpouring of, of God's blessing. And so again and again, but especially in the post-exilic authors, they are reminded of the rewards that come with faithfulness. Now, there's, we, have to, we have to balance this as we think about it from a New Testament perspective, right? Because anything good that we have of God is of His mercy. It is not of our doing. It is not because, well, we did this and God had to give me this. So, so all that we have is of the mercy of God. Yet it is also clear in Scripture that as we are obedient to Him, we are putting ourselves in a place of greater blessing. And so it's not, it's not some sort of a... Um, you know, uh, uh, karma, where we, we do this and God has to do this and, and we got this point system going on. It's, it's, it's all of God's mercy. It is all of God's grace. It is all that which we do not deserve. But it is also true at the very same time that we enjoy God's reward. We enjoy God's blessing as we are obedient to Him. And this reminds us, does it not, of the theme of faithfulness. And so as I... I, I kind of step back and look at all of the minor prophets together, the word that comes to my mind is faithful. Faithful. God is faithful. He keeps His promises. He does what He says He would do. He will ultimately do what He has said He will ultimately do. He is faithful. What about you and me this morning? Are we faithful? And I think we must confess that there's always areas that we are not faithful. What are those areas this morning in your heart, in your life? Are you faithful as a messenger like these prophets were called to be, to be clear in your message about Christ to those around you? Are, are you faithful in your relationships with those that are around you? Are you faithful in your relationship with God who calls you and me to be His people, standing in right relationship with God. Because as we do that, God pours out His reward. He is a faithful, faithful God. Lord, thank You for the time that we've spent with these prophets learning about Your work with Your people. We just praise You, God, this morning for Your faithfulness, and we confess that we are an, un we are an unworthy people often faithless. Cause us, Lord, to see the areas in which we are not faithful, to confess those quickly to you, 
and to put ourselves right with you.